The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Mackenzie Feldman. She is the founder and executive director of Herbicide Free Campus, an organization with the mission of eliminating herbicides from schools across the country. She is also a food sovereignty research assistant for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and a food research fellow for Data for Progress, where she writes food and agriculture policy for the Green New Deal. She also has a brand new podcast with agricultural economist John Eichard, where the two explore the 2023 Farm Bill. Ms. Feldman graduated from the University of California, Berkeley in 2018 with a degree in society and environment and a minor in food systems. While attending school, she and a friend created Herbicide Free California and upon graduating expanded the campaign nationwide. As a result, the entire University of California system is glyphosate free. An herbicide-free campus has also worked with the Protect Our Kaiki Coalition in Hawaii to get all herbicides banned from every public school in the state. Ms. Feldman received the 2019 Brower Youth Award for her work with Herbicide-Free Campus. Welcome, Mackenzie. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I have to just ask you about how all of your work started. You are 24 years old, and you have more accomplishments and successes under your belt than many adults decades older. And so I just wonder if we could start by just asking, where do you get your positive drive and your can-do attitude? We could all use more of that. Mm, Yeah, I would have to say from my mom, even from a young age, she's always been interested in healthy food and kind of instilled those values in me from a young age. And I was really lucky to learn the importance of healthy food. And even as a child, I wasn't always happy with how healthy our house was. It was something that I I learned, and together we've learned a lot more since then about the food system and visited a lot of farms together, and she's my biggest supporter, and and we love learning together and continuing to explore the food system. So I would say she's the most positive person that I know, and, and I've learned a lot of that from wow. her. Well, it's a phenomenal trait to have because I think it's very easy in our society to feel feel defeated if we don't succeed at the first try, and it's easy to feel powerless, and you are both a catalyst and inspiration at a very young age, and I know that you've made such a difference already, and I know that you will continue to do so. So let's dive into some of your work. Now, tell me, First of all, you grew up in Hawaii, and you were able to see the effects that corporate agribusiness was having in your own home state. You saw pesticide exposure and the effects that that was having on communities and still has on communities. But you also witnessed the power of the Hawaiian food sovereignty movement to make positive change. Tell me about what it was like to grow up in Hawaii and how you became inspired 
to work against some of these poisons being sprayed in your community? Yeah, Hawaii is such an interesting place because at one time, Native Hawaiians were 100% self-sufficient. I'm Native Hawaiian myself, and it's such a big part of the culture to care for the land. It's Everyone has a responsibility to care for it, and that's really evident in the language. And at the same time, Hawaii became some of the plantation history, and then once the plantations moved out of Hawaii, they had all this big land and all these agribusiness came in, and Hawaii became ground zero for GMO testing. And they would test 90% of the GMO corn would be tested in Hawaii and then shipped to places like Iowa where it's grown. And these seeds are made to be resistant to pesticides, right? So you have a immense amount of pesticides that are sprayed, restricted use pesticides, some of the most dangerous kinds. And as you know, when you mix different pesticides together, that's when they become the most harmful. So this is all going on, and Hawaii now imports around 90% of their food, which is just crazy because it's it's some of the most fertile land. We really have potential to be self-sufficient. And so, yeah, growing up, protecting the environment was something that I learned from a young age. And I remember in high school learning, my friend that was in an environmental science class and told me she learned about genetically modified foods and how the papayas in Hawaii were being genetically modified. And me and my mom were like, wait, what? What is GMOs? We started researching. And it was at this exact same time that this movement was taking place, being led by people like Autumn, who I know you had on your show just a few weeks ago. And it was really inspiring to see they were basically trying to get these large corporations like Monsanto out of Hawaii and and stop doing the spraying and at least be able to at least tell people what they were spraying because they weren't even doing, these corporations weren't even doing that. And so I watched this crazy campaign happen where locals were going door to door telling people that they should vote no on this and and they need to get these, these companies out. And then you see commercials from Monsanto playing every day. That was just propaganda telling people that GMOs feed the world and, you know, they were really very much entrenched in the community. They fund a lot of the public school supplies, and they were always at the farmer's markets with, with tents set up. Um, yeah, so it was just super inspiring, and I kind of knew. It was one of those moments, Melinda, where I knew that maybe I didn't know everything that I I know now, and I, I wasn't sure how to be helpful at that point, but I knew that one day I would I would learn more, and I would be able to come back and help. And so it's it's just really an honor to be able to be doing this work now with a lot of those same people that inspired me when I was growing up. Mm. And you're referring to an interview with Autumn Ness, and I can provide a link to that for her great food sovereignty work in Hawaii. Yeah, and I think that your point is well taken about the propaganda machine that is so powerful. And I think that your work is helping us question some of the messages that sound really good on the surface. But then when you dig a little bit deeper, you find, wait a second, most of the GMOs are engineered to withstand the spraying of an increasing number of herbicides. And as you mentioned, Hawaii being ground zero because of the increased spraying that you've experienced as living in that state. Well, you left Hawaii then and you decided to go to the University of California at Berkeley Did you know you were going to major in food systems and environment and society, or did you evolve to that major? Yeah, I had no idea. I was recruited there to play beach volleyball, so I didn't really know anything about this school, actually, and 
looking back, it's just kind of crazy that it's, you know, the heart of free speech and you have places like Chez Panisse, it's the, the beginning of the farm-to-table movement and all these things. And I had no idea about any of that. I was going to study business because I didn't know what else to study. And my family just said, oh, I guess business. And then I couldn't take any of the business classes because they interfered with my practice schedule. And I remember this class called Edible Education looked interesting. So I just signed up for that. And I was like, oh, food, food is good. I, I was, you know, a little bit interested in healthy food and all that. And I remember sitting there on the first day and Michael Pollan comes up on the stage to teach about the rise of industrial agriculture. And this was my freshman year. And I just started to cry. And I had no idea why I was crying. My friends looked at me like I was crazy, but I just felt like I had arrived at the right place. And even before he started talking, I knew this, whoa, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't even know what this is, something food systems related. I didn't know that that could be a career. And I was sold after that first class. And then I figured out a way to make that my major and now what I do every day. Um, Yeah. That's so great. That's a great story of how one instructor can inspire a whole future of work. I have a very similar situation. You know, it was one class that turned the switch on to the beauty and power of food and nutrition. Well, I want to ask you then about your experience that got you to be focused on banning herbicides on the campus. What happened to you on that fateful day on the beach volleyball court? Yeah, it was pretty crazy that everything just kind of started from that one day. But I remember in my sophomore year, my professor, Ignacio Chapella, which you might know, he told us that they spray herbicides like Roundup on campus. And I was so shocked. I had, I was, what? I ended up doing a research paper on it and interviewed some of the grounds people about it. But I didn't really know how to make a difference or how to plug into that and, and change it at all. But I had written a paper about it called Can the Campus of Berkeley Be Herbicide Free? And the following spring, probably like five or six months later, I showed up for beach volleyball practice one morning and our coach said, if the balls roll off the court, leave them. An herbicide had just been sprayed everywhere around the perimeter of the court. So a beach volleyball court, you could, you'd have to imagine it's kind of in the forest. So there's all these plants and grasses around. So an herbicide was sprayed around there. And I was so upset and, you know, just from what I was learning in school and the history of what I had learned when I was growing up in Hawaii and the whole GMO movement that was happening. And I knew people got sick from the pesticides and the herbicides. And so I was so mad. And I pulled my teammate Bridget into it. She was a freshman at the time, but she was also mad. And I said, okay, we need to figure out what, what to do about this. So we had our coach introduce us to the athletics grounds manager. And he was really nice. He said, yeah, I spray Ranger Pro around the court. And for those of you who don't know, aren't familiar with that herbicide, it is a Monsanto herbicide with the active ingredient glyphosate. So similar to Roundup, if you're familiar with that. And in 2015, so a year before this had happened, the World Health Organization had declared glyphosate a probable carcinogen. So we knew that these things could probably give us cancer and it was rainy season and it's not like these things stay in one place or they dry and then they're they're safe after they're sprayed. There's, we have no idea where, where these, you know, what happens with these chemicals and where they travel and all that. And so the athletics grounds manager said, you know, I, I just don't have the staff to pick the weeds, but 
if your team wants to do it, I won't spray it here anymore. And we said, yeah, we'll just pick the weeds for you. So from then on, they haven't sprayed since. And we started picking the weeds. And then me and Bridget thought, wow, that was pretty easy. He was pretty willing to meet with us and change. It was really just that he didn't have help. And maybe we could replicate this small model that we started at the courts to the rest of campus. And yeah, we haven't looked back since. We were really fortunate that our ground manager that oversaw the entire campus was willing to sit down with us. And we ended up bringing Beyond Pesticides and Chip Osborne to Berkeley and did a pilot project. And you know, Chip Osborne is a professional horticulturist and is pretty much the guru when it comes to organic land management. And so we got a grant to bring him and we got to choose the two largest green spaces on campus to go organic. And we started a student group and, you know, we got a resolution passed in the student government. And yeah, we really haven't looked back from there. That's an amazing story. One of the barriers that I have experienced is that the grounds managers have often been convinced that these products are safe. Even lawn chemicals in communities where the people are spraying, they think that these products are safe or they're safe after they dry, don't worry about it. And then also, as you mentioned, the idea that, well, look, we don't have the staff. So moving forward, you either had to have people agree to pull the weeds or, as you did smartly, have somebody come in and teach the grounds manager and staff that, yeah, you know, there really are alternatives because the alternatives aren't readily taught, are they? No, no, they're really not. The integrated pest management that groundskeepers are taught is really just about, you know, pesticides are used, even if they have an IPM program, an integrated pest management program, which is kind of the bare minimum for sustainable management, We've seen that even with that, it's pesticides are used as a last resort, but there's really no consequence for using pesticides as a first resort. And if you're not taught the alternatives, of course you're going to use pesticides as a first resort, especially when you're you're overworked and you're underpaid, and that's the easiest thing to do. And so you're not taught the alternatives. And that's why for us it's really important that the groundskeepers are not our enemies. We have to work with them. And most times they don't agree with us. This is just at Berkeley, we were lucky, but now we work with, you know, around 18 schools and they mostly don't agree, but it doesn't matter. And we, and we know that the work is going to fall on them the most. And so we teach our students that they have to show up to pull weeds with these groundskeepers and show that they're committed and do what they can to make them know that we do appreciate that the work that they do and we know that they're up early doing this and just because they're spray they're not a bad person but we're going to work together to figure out the alternative right well let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us you are tuned into food sleuth radio we are speaking with ms mckenzie feldman she is the founder and executive director of herbicide free campus an organization with the mission of eliminating herbicides from schools across the country She is also a food sovereignty research assistant for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and a food research fellow for Data for Progress, where she writes food and agriculture policy. Well, I know that you've also extended your herbicide ban in Hawaii. You brought Dwayne Lee Johnson to Hawaii. He's become relatively well-known in that he was a groundskeeper for a school in California He was exposed to glyphosate regularly, 
and he developed a form of cancer that has been associated with the use of this herbicide. You brought him to Hawaii. The end of the story is that the Department of Education in Hawaii has prohibited herbicide use on school grounds. So once again, another huge success story, but you probably ran up against some opposition. Tell me how you dealt with those challenges. Yeah, that was an amazing story. And I think a lot of the opposition came before we made that trip. And there was a lot of people that were trying to convince the Department of Education this for a long time. And the DOE actually was saying, oh, we don't actually spray herbicides. And people knew that they were, but for some reason they maybe thought that there wasn't, or there, you know, these different schools. Hawaii is unique in that the whole public school system for the entire state is under one Department of Education. And so I think this person at the top maybe wasn't sure of what was going on at all these schools. And so in this final meeting on the last day, we had Lee Johnson there. We had all these activists in Hawaii. And Lee Johnson just told his story about how he got cancer. He's terminally ill from using Roundup. You know, please don't spray this on your campuses where you have children. And this one teacher stood up and said, I spray this on my campus every week. I'm an agriculture teacher, and this is what I teach. I spray this every week. And so it was actually this weird but also amazing moment because for so long the Department of Education said that they weren't spraying. And then here you had a teacher at this school admitting to spraying. And so finally the woman that's the head of the Department of Education stood up and she said, okay, we're banning herbicides at all these schools. And the next day in the paper boom, front page of the local section is that herbicides are banned. And it was the last day of the trip. And it was an amazing victory. And so we couldn't have asked for a a more unique way to end and, and such a victory. And I think it really helps to have Lee come and tell his story. And he's just a really humble, amazing person who's using his platform to make change. And when you hear from someone who actually was in that role, it's, it's different when you have students telling a groundskeeper how to do their job. But when you actually have a former groundskeeper saying it themselves, it's really, really powerful. It absolutely is. Those testimonials from people who have been affected are extremely powerful. And I'm so grateful to Lee Johnson for being able to travel and tell his story. We need to move on to some of the other great work you're doing because I feel like the Green New Deal is the topic to dive into next. You have written some wonderful policy pieces for the Data for Progress. I was not familiar with that organization, but wow, I will provide a link to that for good policy, short and concise pieces to help people understand what this means to us moving forward for sustainability. If you were in an elevator and somebody said to you, well, what is the Green New Deal exactly? How would you describe it succinctly? I would describe it as a plan to transition millions of people to good, clean jobs with a livable wage. I think what's really the most important about the Green New Deal is that this is about jobs. A lot of environmental people think environmentalists are trying to take away jobs. No, this is about creating millions of jobs, and it's tied into healthcare, and it's tied into people having a livable wage and housing, and it's tied into racial justice and and environmental justice. And so I would say that, yeah, it's focused on creating millions of jobs. Right. And before COVID came on the scene, 
we were so focused on climate policy and climate change. And I think we've been a little bit distracted because we've had this upending event that continues on, but it's connected to everything. And I think that the Green New Deal is a wonderful way to get ourselves out of this and see a future. So you recently published an article with John Eichert, who's a well-known agricultural economist, and the title was A Green New Deal Must Offer Farmers a Way to Transition to Regenerative Agriculture. And I think you hit the nail on the head because so many farmers, from my perspective anyway, from my experience, they don't know how to get out of a bad situation. And you're focusing on the farm bill with John Eichert on your podcast. What do you want our listeners to know about this space? I would want listeners to know that it's extremely hard for farmers to farm sustainably because of the way that policies currently are and that there's incentives to just grow commodity crops or there's incentives to just plant fence row to fence row and and exhaust the soil. And so there's a lot more wonky policy I could talk about. And and if you send the link, people can kind of dive in. And and I'm not going to take credit for all these ideas. It was really John was the brains behind what we're putting forward. And what I love about him is even though he comes from an older generation, he's really radical and he has actually a lot of hope and is a really positive person. And what we propose is really the whole farm net revenue insurance program in the form of a tax credit program that can support farmers as they're transitioning to sustainable agriculture because it is risky in those first few years, especially. And we talk about incentivizing farmers and rewarding them for doing sustainable practices like intercropping and cover cropping and, you know, even letting the land grow fallow for a little bit and letting it rest. And so we have all these things in the policy, but I think also what I really want people to know, I really want to get more young people excited about the farm bill. And I think it's something that feels really boring to a lot of people, but it's actually really important. And I hope that this can inspire our generation who's, you know, really passionate about climate change to get excited about the potential for radical food and agriculture policy that can support black and indigenous farmers, small farmers, beginning farmers, and people who wish to transition to regenerative organic farming. Mm, That's great. And I will provide a link to that article. I also think that this article is powerful as well as your podcast because it is intergenerational. So you're borrowing on the wisdom and insights from an older generation, and you're partnering with the energy and enthusiasm from a young generation that we hope to have a wonderful life on our beautiful planet for generations to come. And I want to give another shout out to the policy work and the some of the papers that you've worked on, not only on regenerative agriculture, but the Blue New Deal, which describes how the fishing industry has affected our oceans on antitrust and fairness for farmers and how we can have rural economic revitalization. And if you've traveled through at all some of these farming communities in the Midwest, they've been exploited and robbed. And I'm hoping that your work will help rejuvenate them. Thank you so much. I think the reason why this even came about was because I saw Data for Progress had put out a report on the Green New Deal but that it didn't mention anything about food and agriculture. So I just contacted them and asked if, you know, I could gather a bunch of experts and we can produce these policy recommendations for 
food and agriculture and ocean policy, and they were really receptive to it, and, and so that's how that worked out. And I think with the Green New Deal, with climate change, food and agriculture, farm workers, all of these things are missing from the conversation. And so you see a lot of people that are targeting the oil and gas industry, which is obviously extremely important, but you don't see a lot of people in the climate space really talking as much about food and agriculture. And so I really want to change that because, as you know, it's a huge part of the problem. It can also be a huge part of the solution. And really, the only way that we are going to survive this climate catastrophe is if we can figure out how to give land back to to Black and Indigenous farmers and really support the people who know how to farm the most sustainably. So that's what I'm really passionate about. Mm, Right. Learning from that wisdom and having that alternative to put into place and fighting against at the same time this pervasive and intrusive propaganda message that really only benefits those that are selling these poisons and this industrial method of farming that benefits a few at the exploitation of many. I want to dive into your work as a food sovereignty research assistant, and maybe by starting that conversation with a definition of food sovereignty. What does that mean exactly? Food sovereignty is really about people having the power to grow their own food, to manage their own food system. They're not reliant on a system to feed them. It's really about people being empowered to grow their own food. And when I think of Hawaii, think of Native Hawaiians growing kalo or taro, which is a a staple for Native Hawaiians, and really just having control over your food system. Mm -hmm. Mackenzie, we are nearing the close of the program, and so I want to give you a minute to leave our listeners with a charge or to cover anything that I might have not brought forth. Well, thank you so much for giving me the platform to talk about my work. I think just to update people on Herbicide Free Campus, we've spread around the country. We've started this fellowship so students can take this campaign to their campuses and we give them the tools so they can advocate for Herbicide Free Campuses. And so if you're interested in supporting that, we always need support. And I think back to your first question of what gives me hope and and positivity, I think, you know, there's been a lot of points in my life where I've felt paralyzed by fear of climate change and not knowing how to plan for a future when, when it wasn't clear how long we will be able to survive on this planet. And I think that working with students gives me so much hope. It's so rewarding to see the work that I've done continue. And it's amazing to work with students, especially during the pandemic, who are figuring out ways to continue their activism and advocate and protect workers and all doing it from home. And so I would say that if you can figure out a way to to support or empower young people in your life, I really think that we are the future because we're the ones that will have to inherit this planet going forward. Mm. Well, we're going to have to close, but I want to, of course, thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Mackenzie Feldman, the founder and executive director of Herbicide Free Campus. The website is herbicidefreecampus.org. I will provide a link to that in the show notes. She is also a food sovereignty research assistant for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and a food research fellow for Data for Progress, where she writes food and agriculture policy for the Green New Deal. I will provide links to those sites, as well as a link to your brand new podcast with agricultural economist John Eichard, 
where more people can learn about the 2023 Farm Bill and how it affects all the food on our plates and our planet moving forward. Mackenzie, thank you so much for being a catalyst and an inspiration and all of your good work. Thank you so much for having me. And I think your role as a dietitian that connects the dots to human health and environmental health and, and agriculture is so important. So thank you for having this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.